due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, coercion, sexual assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Joyce Mitchell hummed a quiet tune as she pushed her shopping cart down the aisle. She should have been tired after a full day of work, but instead she was wide awake. As the 51-year-old turned into the hardware section, she felt her heart flutter. Careful that no one was watching, Joyce reached into her purse and pulled out a crumpled note. It was from 34-year-old David Sweat, an inmate at Clinton Correctional Facility. David was a convicted murderer, and she had once been in charge of supervising him. But he was more than just another prisoner. He was her crush, maybe even her soulmate. As Joyce reread his words for the umpteenth time, she melted. David cared about her. He listened, and unlike her husband, he let her know exactly how he felt. His note today was no different, so when he asked her for a favor, she had to give in. As she strolled through the aisles of the superstore, she tossed hacksaw blades and chisels into her cart. Deep down, she knew what she was doing wasn't right. She was supposed to report David Sweat for requesting these tools. It was part of her job, but she couldn't betray him. He needed her. She would do anything for him. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the second episode of a three-part special about finding love in lockup. We're taking a look at the way inmates form relationships in prison, the issues that complicate these romances, and the high-profile cases of love gone right and wrong. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we explored the reasons a steady relationship can not only be helpful, but essential to getting a prisoner through their sentence. This week, we'll look at three couples who risked everything to take their relationships to the next level, even if it meant jail time for them both. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We all know that love can make us do unpredictable things. During this three-part special, we're taking a look at relationships between prison inmates and civilians living life on the outside. The overwhelming desire to be together sends many of these couples down dark roads, and sometimes there's no turning back. Jennifer Forsyth learned this lesson the hard way. In 2004, the 30-year-old worked as a nurse at Northwest Correctional Complex in Tiptonville, Tennessee. It was there that she got to know a 33-year-old inmate named George Hyatt. George was good-looking, charming, and an unrepentant criminal. At the time he met Jennifer, he was two years into a 35-year sentence for aggravated assault and robbery. George also had a penchant for losing the authorities, managing to escape from law enforcement on four separate occasions. In 2002, he and another prisoner had gotten as far as Florida. He was undeniably a master at slipping away, but wasn't as good at laying low. He always found himself back in the hands of the police before long. Jennifer, on the other hand, had no arrest record at all, but she had suffered plenty of trauma. According to a brief memoir she wrote in 2005, she was molested as a young child growing up in Utah. At age 18, she became pregnant. She and the father went on to get married and have two more children, but the relationship was plagued by substance abuse and fighting. Her husband eventually went to prison on drug charges in 2000. Four years later, when she met George, Jennifer was ready for a change. She told a friend later that she fell in love with him at first sight. It may be hard to understand how a prison nurse like Jennifer could fall for an inmate, but the fact that these connections are so taboo could make them all the more alluring. Before I continue, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Ellie Gotzi, author and consultant clinical psychologist, likens the attraction between inmates and prison staff to the forbidden fruit syndrome. If we're told that something or someone is out of reach, we're only going to want it more. If a relationship must be kept secret, no matter what, this can be a major bonding agent. As Gotzi puts it, it becomes a we love each other against all obstacles kind of thing. For George and Jennifer Hyatt, their relationship didn't stay secret for very long. She was quickly caught sneaking food into George's cell as a favor to him. She was promptly fired, but the relationship thrived anyway. Eventually, the couple received permission from the warden to get married, and they did so in May 2005. Jennifer was head over heels for George, but she didn't stand a chance of seeing him on the outside anytime soon. They faced years and years of being apart. Only six states permit conjugal visits. Tennessee isn't one of them. The couple decided that the only way their marriage stood a fighting chance was if George escaped once again. 
It's unclear who came up with the idea first, but eventually the two hashed out a plan. One that meant Jennifer would have to do all the dirty work. On August 9th, 2005, George attended a hearing at the Roan County Courthouse in Kingston, Tennessee for an old burglary charge. If he was convicted, six more years would be added to his already substantial sentence. George, in leg irons and handcuffs, was helped out of the prison transport van that day by two officers, Wayne Cotton Morgan and Larry Harris. 56-year-old Wayne had been working in corrections his entire career. He carefully guided George through the parking lot and into the courthouse. Inside, Jennifer sat in the front row. As George stood to plead guilty, he and Jennifer exchanged a look. In response, Jennifer stood up and walked angrily out of the room. To a casual observer, it might have seemed that she was upset about the plea, but George had actually just given her the signal. The plan was on. Jennifer stormed out of the courthouse and made a beeline for her Ford Explorer. Just as George had instructed, she got inside, turned on the engine, and rolled down the window. In her passenger seat, was a nine millimeter pistol she'd bought at a pawn shop. Her heart pounded. Now, all she could do was wait. A few minutes later, George emerged, flanked by the officers. As they led him to the prison van, some witnesses heard George yell, shoot him. In a flash, she slammed her foot on the gas, grabbed her gun, and aimed at Wayne Morgan through the open window. She hit him in the stomach before he even had time to reach for his weapon. The other officer, Larry Harris, unholstered his gun and shot at Jennifer's explorer as she barreled toward him. One bullet hit her in the upper thigh. When Larry ran out of ammo, he grabbed Wayne's pistol. For two minutes, he and Jennifer exchanged fire as the bullets ricocheted off the SUV. She never stopped moving, except to let George inside and slam the door shut. As the explorer raced out of the parking lot and took off down the street, Larry rushed to Wayne Morgan's side. Though she didn't know it yet, Jennifer Hyatt had just committed murder. The plan was for George and Jennifer to get on the interstate as fast as possible, but they first needed to ditch the Explorer. Just a few blocks away, the couple left their shot-up SUV behind and hopped in a gold minivan that Jennifer had borrowed from one of her patients. Then, the two of them drove 274 miles to Florence, Kentucky, just across the border from Cincinnati. There, Jennifer went into a Lowe's and bought a hacksaw then checked into an Econo Lodge a mile away. At some point, she sawed off her husband's shackles and dyed her hair. She went from a shoulder-length light blonde hairstyle to a jet black bob. The next day, however, things started to break down. First, the couple threw away their gun and George's prison jumpsuit in a dumpster behind the motel. It's hard to know what they were thinking exactly, leaving such a clear trail of evidence in their wake. It's possible they thought their troubles were already behind them, 
or they simply no longer wanted to be armed and dangerous. Either way, the pair abandoned their minivan next and took a taxi to Columbus, Ohio. The cab dropped them off at another budget motel where they paid for a three-night stay. At that point, Jennifer's leg was still bleeding from the gunshot wound. She was happy to have some time to rest. While she and George ordered Mexican food and settled in, the cab driver got home and switched on the TV. By now, the escape was all over the news. Descriptions of George and Jennifer Hyatt flooded the airwaves, and police urged the public to call in with sightings. Even George's family went on camera and begged him to turn himself in. The cabbie suddenly realized he'd unknowingly abetted two fugitives. He put in a call to law enforcement. A little after 9 p.m., the phone rang in the Hyatt's room. Jennifer picked up. She didn't seem to be surprised to hear that the motel was already surrounded. 25 U.S. Marshals and SWAT team members were waiting for them to surrender. She agreed to give it up. The couple walked out peacefully and were immediately arrested. George Hyatt's last and greatest escape was over. He and Jennifer were extradited back to Tennessee where they were charged with first-degree murder. Both pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty and are currently serving a life sentence with no possibility of parole. Unfortunately for them, George and Jennifer Hyatt will never see each other again. In the wake of the shooting, Jennifer's family and friends all expressed disbelief at what she'd done. Her mother even said that her daughter had a long history of being subservient to men and that George Hyatt had brainwashed her. But Jennifer disagreed. She wrote her family that George had tried to talk her out of the plan. Far from being brainwashed, she described the breakout plot as one of the rare times in her life she'd been in total control and had made her own choices. In fact, she told friends that those two days on the run with him had been the best of her life. Up next, we'll take a look at another prison relationship and the gruesome copycat crime it nearly inspired. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast Network, and I'm thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for us. It's the four-year anniversary of a podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, why wait? There's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Warnos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. You do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. 
New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. For Jennifer Hyatt, being married meant doing anything for her husband, even committing murder. Her arrest serves as a cautionary tale, a warning about what can happen when a relationship with a criminal is taken to the extreme. But it isn't the only story of a couple going too far to prove their love. Playwright and actress Veronica Compton, for example, once became so infatuated with a convicted murderer that she was willing to pay the ultimate price to free him. In 1980, 25-year-old Veronica began writing letters to 29-year-old Kenneth Bianchi. Bianchi was one of the most notorious serial killers in America, He and his 46-year-old cousin, Angelo Bono, raped and murdered at least 10 girls and women in Los Angeles between 1977 and 1978. Police called them the Hillside Stranglers after the way they'd pose their victims on the sides of hills in full view of passing cars and pedestrians. It took over a year, but authorities eventually captured Bianchi in 1979. He pleaded guilty to murder and received two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Soon after his trial, Bianchi heard from Veronica. She was attractive, talented, and troubled. By her own account, she'd survived a child kidnapping, cancer, and an abusive relationship. She contacted Bianchi because she'd written a play about a serial killer and wanted feedback from a real-life murderer. At first, Bianchi ignored her letters. But Veronica was undeterred. She kept writing to him. Little by little, she revealed details about herself. She was a model, an actress, an artist. She had plenty of lovers, some of them female. Pretty soon, Bianchi replied. By the time they met in person at his prison, the play was long forgotten. From the beginning, Veronica was dead set on forming a relationship. She seemed to be more in lust than in love. She spoke openly about wanting to have sex with Bianchi. She even told him she had an orgasm while talking to him on the phone. These claims fit a condition psychologists call hyperstophilia. While some experts disagree on the specifics, It is often described as an intense sexual attraction to someone who's committed a, quote, outrage. Outrages are violent crimes like rape, murder, or some other kind of shocking offense. It's not enough that the crime makes the person attractive. The admirer has to be physically aroused by the idea of their crush committing the offense. Veronica found Bianchi's past a definite turn-on and seemed fascinated by what he'd done. 
She even talked about killing people herself. When they first met, she confided in him that she had murdered someone before, though this was almost certainly untrue. Bianchi responded to her advances with love notes, compliments, and appreciation. He actively wooed Veronica, writing her poems and making her feel like she was the only person he could trust. But he likely wasn't actually in love with her. As it turned out, Bianchi had an idea. He'd finally got around to reading the play Veronica had written. The serial killer at its center seemed to be based entirely on him, except for one crucial difference. She was a woman. Just like Bianchi, the killer preyed on young females and murdered them by strangulation. After slaying her victims, she deposited semen inside their dead bodies. That way, the police would never suspect a woman was responsible. The story inspired Bianchi. If Veronica went up to Washington and imitated his murders, then the cops would believe that the real Hillside Strangler was still on the loose. They'd think the wrong man was sitting in jail. Bianchi sat on his plan until the day that Veronica told him she'd do anything for him. She'd die for him. That's when he pounced. He asked her to prove it. Veronica agreed. She boarded a plane disguised for some reason as a pregnant woman and flew up to Washington. Bianchi told her to go to the college where he'd stalked his final victims and find a small woman she could physically overpower. Veronica did her best but failed to find a suitable target. So she checked into a motel, did some cocaine, and then went to a nearby bar. There, she spotted a 26-year-old woman named Kim Breed and turned on the charm. She invited Kim back to the hotel to do some coke, but Kim refused. She did, however, offer to give Veronica a ride. Kim wasn't planning on coming inside, but Veronica eventually convinced her to come up to the room and have another glass of wine. Once Kim was inside, Veronica knew she had to act fast. Kim sat down on the edge of the bed while Veronica slipped into the bathroom. There, she grabbed a length of cord from her purse and psyched herself up. Bianchi had told her the element of surprise was crucial. If she could get the cord around Kim's neck before she turned around, it would all be over in a matter of moments. With her heart pounding, Veronica snuck out of the bathroom, crept up behind Kim, and pulled the cord tight around her neck. But her victim was stronger than she'd bargained for. Even with the cord pressed against her windpipe, Kim was able to reach behind her, grab Veronica, and pull her over her head. Then she ran out of the room. Veronica was stunned. She'd blown it. Panicked, she fled the motel and hopped on a plane back to Los Angeles. But it was too late. Between her absurd pregnancy disguise and the hysterical fit she had in the airport, the police easily tracked her down in California. On October 3rd, Veronica was arrested. Almost right away, Bianchi's feelings for her began to fade. 
His letters got shorter, were sent less often, and pretty soon she could tell he had lost interest. Needless to say, she was a little upset. Not only was she facing serious charges for what she'd done, she'd lost her boyfriend, all because she'd failed to commit murder. But as it turned out, Veronica's love life wasn't entirely over. In a strange twist, she soon caught the eye of another serial killer, Doug Clark, also known as a Sunset Strip Killer. Doug and his girlfriend, Carol Bundy, had gone on a rampage in Los Angeles in the summer of 1980, slaying six people. Doug was in jail awaiting trial when he wrote Veronica a fan letter, telling her he was impressed by her copycat crime. Possibly sensing her jilted feelings, he insisted that he would have appreciated a woman making that kind of sacrifice for him. Despite a brief flirtation, it seems that Veronica was still in love with Bianchi and only wrote to Doug to make him jealous. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Bianchi stopped responding. Her pen pal romance with Doug fizzled out and in March of 1981, she was sentenced to life in prison for attempted murder. Veronica ended up staying in jail until she was 46, but she did eventually find love. In 1987, she met a professor from Eastern Washington University named James Wallace. Though he was 26 years older and married with two children, the pair hit it off after she saw him deliver a lecture. Two years later, Wallace divorced his wife and married Veronica. They had a daughter together in 1993 after a conjugal visit on the grounds of the prison. As of 2019, the couple was still together. This makes Veronica one of the few notorious female inmates to attract a mate from the other side, and maybe the only case of someone who's experienced both sides of hybristophilia. Wallace swore he went into the marriage with open eyes and that Veronica is the most moral person he's ever known. Today, Veronica is completely over Kenneth Bianchi, she blames her involvement with him and her crime on being in a drug-induced psychosis. Her words suggested that the relationship was never actually based in anything real, but that's also how infatuation works. Things can end as quickly as they can start. For Veronica, they ended terribly. Up next, we'll recount how two inmates took advantage of a prison seamstress to pull off the prison break of the century. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. 
Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. Veronica Compton and Kenneth Bianchi will likely go down in history as one of the most eccentric prison couples. But maybe the most well-known example of love and lockup gone wrong happened in Dannemora, New York in 2015. The story began seven years earlier, when 44-year-old Joyce Mitchell started work at Clinton Correctional Facility in 2008. Her husband Lyle was already employed at the prison in one of their eight tailor shops. Joyce was assigned to another of the tailor shops as a supervisor, One of the first things she had to do when she got hired was to watch a training video. It wasn't about the job per se, but about the people she'd be managing. Called Games Inmates Play, it cautioned employees about the ways prisoners might manipulate them into breaking the rules. According to the video, there were two golden rules that every civilian staff member had to abide by. Never get too friendly with an inmate and never share personal information. To do either would be to court danger. Joyce watched the video many times during the year she worked at Clinton. Any prison is inherently a dangerous place to work, but Clinton was arguably even more so. It housed some of the most violent offenders in the state, rapists, murderers, and sex offenders. But that didn't seem to bother Joyce, She wasn't afraid of the men in her shop at all. If anything, she wanted to be friends with them. According to writer Charles Gardner, Joyce's attitude started attracting notice around 2012. Her supervisor remarked years later that she didn't keep the distance. She talked to the inmates like they were her pals, which was exactly what she wasn't supposed to do. Joyce was taken aside and reminded to be more professional, but this only made things worse. Soon, she started bringing in brownies and other baked goods for the men in complete defiance of what she'd been told. Her supervisor responded by writing up an official memo. Joyce, in turn, filed a complaint with the prison superintendent. She claimed she was being harassed. The superintendent transferred her to another tailor shop in November of 2013. It was there that she met a man who she didn't just want to be friends with. She wanted to be with him in every sense of the word. His name was David Paul Sweat. Green-eyed and fair-haired, the 33-year-old had been at Clinton for 10 years. He was serving a life sentence for shooting a deputy sheriff and then running him over with his car. Sweat was considered a violent criminal even by Clinton standards. He was on the prisons list of the top 75 inmates who were considered to be the most high risk. Despite that, he was also a model inmate. His good behavior over the years had earned him a job in the tailor shop and a cell in the part of the prison called Honor Block. 
Inmates who live there were given extra perks like more time for working out or additional phone privileges. Joyce, who already seemed to crave friendship, was soon smitten with David Sweat. It wasn't just that he was tall and somewhat handsome. He responded to her. He welcomed and returned her attention. During work, Joyce started making excuses to walk by his desk and strike up some chit-chat. It was obvious she had a crush on him, but he seemed flattered instead of embarrassed. He laughed and giggled along with her. He listened as she talked about being lonely in her marriage. Soon, he wasn't just a crush. He was a source of emotional support. It seemed that he may have wanted to start a physical relationship too. When Joyce put her arm around him, he didn't shrug it off. He even reportedly followed her to empty supply rooms and stayed there with her for minutes on end. But all the flirting eventually came to an end. In July 2014, Joyce's superiors got an anonymous letter accusing her and Sweat of having an improper relationship. Sweat was immediately removed from the shop and prison officials launched an official investigation. Joyce was irate. She couldn't believe that Sweat had been punished just for talking to her. It seemed totally unfair. Every day she lobbied for his return. The scandal caught the attention of Sweat's good buddy and fellow tailor shop worker, Richard William Matt. 47 years old and stocky, Matt may not have been as easy on the eyes as Sweat, but he was much more cunning. He'd been arrested for everything from rape to murder to robbery. He was in Clinton serving 25 years to life for kidnapping his former boss, murdering him, and then dismembering the body. Matt also had a history of escaping. He'd broken out of jails and group homes four different times. Though he'd largely stayed out of trouble at Clinton, guards knew he was dangerous. Later, they would call him psychotic and a master of manipulation. In short, he was the exact kind of prisoner the training video had warned Joyce about. But she was oblivious. All she knew was that she had another friend at work who sympathized with her plight. So when Matt volunteered to act as a middleman to help her correspond with Sweat and keep the romance going, she jumped at the chance. Joyce eagerly handed him notes, food, and even naked pictures of herself. In turn, Matt gave her Sweat's replies. Little by little, the two kept the flames of romance alight. But Matt wasn't helping out of the goodness of his heart. He could see that Joyce could be useful. Soon, she was doing favors for him too. In August 2014, a month after Sweat left the shop, Joyce commissioned a portrait of her son from Matt, who happened to be a talented painter. He was all too happy to oblige, but in exchange, he wanted one thing, a pair of lighted reading glasses. In retrospect, it's clear they weren't going to be used for reading, but Joyce went out and got them anyway. It seemed like an innocent enough request to her, even though it was technically against the rules. Then Joyce asked for another painting, and Matt 
asked for exercise gloves, the kind that could protect his hands from, say, sharp objects. Again, Joyce was only too happy to do him a favor. She handed them over without much thought. By September 2014, David Sweat and Joyce were officially cleared of misconduct, but then Joyce learned that Sweat was never coming back to the shop. He'd gotten written up for insulting a prison employee. His punishment was removal from honor block and 30 days of confinement in his cell. Now Joyce and Matt were upset. Joyce wanted to be with Sweat, and Matt seemed increasingly desperate to have him back in the next door cell. The two consoled each other. Joyce had to admit, Richard Matt was flirtatious. He seemed to be interested in her, and it felt kind of nice. So much so that by October, Matt could pretty much get Joyce to do anything he asked. Like call his daughter for him or smuggle in tools, baked goods, and other items. She became a pro at getting things past the metal detectors, Though it's not clear exactly when Joyce learned about Matt and Sweat's escape plan, she likely had an idea when they asked her to slip them six hacksaw blades in the winter of 2015. By then, Matt had succeeded in getting Sweat back in the cell next door by persuading a corrupt corrections officer to put in a good word with the higher-ups. Now neighbors once again, the two worked out a plan Every night for a month, they carefully chiseled away at their cell walls during recreation periods and hid the holes behind a painting. Eventually, the gaps were big enough for them to crawl out of their cells, get on the catwalks behind them, and climb down into the basement of the prison. For the next three months, they explored all the pipes and tunnels without being caught. Meanwhile, Richard Matt worked on Joyce, They depended on her to smuggle them tools. At some point, they asked her to be their getaway driver. They would need a car and a lot of supplies to survive in the woods outside the prison. In order to secure her loyalty, Matt's relationship with Joyce turned sexual. According to her later statements to investigators, Matt grabbed her in the shop one day in April 2015 and kissed her on the mouth. Then in May, he asked her to perform oral sex on him, which she did, she said, out of fear for her husband's safety. On another occasion, Matt approached her desk wearing a large coat. It had a hole cut out in the pocket so she could discreetly fondle his genitals right in front of the other inmates in the shop. Joyce quickly got carried away. She even let it slip to Matt that she wouldn't mind getting rid of her husband, Lyle. He had a $500,000 life insurance policy. If they wanted to survive on the run, it might be best if he were murdered. Apparently, his safety was no longer her primary concern. The two started plotting to get rid of Lyle. Joyce thought she had two men who'd do anything for her. She never realized that she was the one being played. The situation is more common than one might think. In a 2003 paper written for the journal Deviant Behavior, professors Robert Worley, James Marquardt, and Janet Mulings 
looked at the phenomenon of turners. These are inmates who pursue relationships with prison guards or staff. They found that turners fall into three separate categories, heartbreakers, exploiters, or hellraisers. Heartbreakers are inmates who genuinely want to date prison officials. Hellraisers try to use these relationships to disrupt prison life. Exploiters are the most transactional. They form connections so they can get favors, perks, and contraband. Matt and Sweat definitely fell into the exploiter category. Neither of them, it seemed, ever felt seriously about Joyce Mitchell. In fact, later on, Sweat would openly call her an idiot. But Joyce, in her own way, would have her revenge. After months of exploring the guts of the prison, Matt and Sweat were able to crawl through an 18-inch wide steam pipe and use it to tunnel beyond the perimeter wall. In the early hours of June 5, 2015, they made it all the way into the town of Danamora. They turned around and decided to make their escape the following night. Joyce would meet them there. They asked her to bring a compass, an atlas, fishing poles, a hatchet, and a shotgun. The plan was to drive to West Virginia, hide out there for a few weeks, and then drive south to Mexico. But the first order of business would be to kill Lyle Mitchell. The following afternoon, Joyce got the signal. As Richard Matt left the tailor shop, he punched the air with his fist. The escape was happening that night. She would have to be ready to drive them. But Joyce panicked. She left work with her husband that evening and stopped for dinner. She couldn't calm herself down. She knew that in just a handful of hours, she'd have to meet Sweat and Matt with her car. She'd be leaving everything she knew and joining two escaped convicts for a life on the run. Not only that, but they were going to kill her husband. Matt had even given her sedatives to knock him out beforehand. Joyce sat at dinner, staring out the window, trying to figure out what to do. For all of these months, she'd felt swept up in something larger than herself, something she couldn't stop, even if she wanted to. Part of her had never quite believed the plot was real. It was just a fun distraction, something to keep herself entertained. Did she really want to leave Lyle and become a fugitive? By the time she got home, she was in the midst of a full-blown panic attack. She laid down to take a nap, then woke up and decided to go to the ER. She checked in right before midnight, just as Matt and Sweat pulled off a manhole cover and emerged onto a Danamora street. They looked around. Joyce was nowhere in sight. After waiting for as long as they could in the residential neighborhood, they took off into the woods. It would only be a handful of hours until the rest of the world learned of the escape. At dawn the next morning, prison officials discovered the men were missing. By 11 a.m. when Joyce checked out of the hospital, her phone was filled with messages. State police were trying to find her. She knew then that they really had broken out. She immediately went to the nearest station and turned herself in. 
By the next day, Sunday, June 7th, she'd confessed to smuggling in tools. Five days later, she was officially arrested. She was charged with promoting prison contraband and criminal facilitation. Meanwhile, a massive and expensive manhunt was underway to find Sweat and Matt. It lasted three weeks. In all that time, they never made it across the border. On Friday, June 26th, Richard Matt was killed in a shootout with a member of Border Patrol. Two days later, on Sunday, June 28th, David Sweat was spotted by a police officer. He was captured after being shot in the arm and shoulder. Joyce Mitchell was sentenced to two years and four months as part of a plea deal. She was fined over $6,000 in order to pay nearly $80,000 to the state to reimburse them for the damage done to Clinton. Sweat was given an extra three to seven year sentence for escaping. He was also fined and ordered to pay the same amount as Joyce. At her parole board hearing in 2019, Joyce explained that she was vulnerable to Sweat and Matt because of low self-esteem, problems with her mother, and an abusive marriage to Lyle, who she later divorced. To a reporter, she admitted, I got caught up in the fantasy. It seems that fantasy is the common thread in all of these stories. In each of them, one person was looking for affection, thrills, or validation, while the other was simply searching for a way out of prison. When an inmate has had so much taken away from them, love and intimacy become just another transaction. To these prisoners, their freedom will always come first. That may be the reason so many cases of love and lockup break down when the inmate is finally set free. If it's a choice between love and liberty, love will likely lose. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part three of our Love and Lockup special. We'll go into depth about three more stories of inmate relationships that struggle to stay afloat. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found the books Danamora by Charles Gardner and The Hillside Stranglers by Darcy O'Brien extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all other Spotify originals from ParCast, for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Joanna Philbin, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood, Mickey Taylor, and Brian Petrus. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. Each week, join me and my co-host Greg for a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.